and welcome to another episode of the Drum Corps Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Rob, and I'm here with my good buddy, George. How's it going, George? It's good. It's get, it's, um, I'm glad to be back so soon after our, our last episode. Yeah. Hey, uh, we have an awesome guest today, but before we intro him, dude, let's talk about uh, the activity. I've slowly seen some videos online mm-hmm. of uh, some stuff. Did you see that uh, uh, Music City Mystique video? Yeah. It's, it's, really, it's really interesting um, what people are doing um, with what they have available to them. So like Music, Music City Mystique put out a really cool, um, they're doing the virtual thing. Yeah. But then there are other groups like uh, Infinity and Matrix that are doing the more in-person, traditional stuff. So depending on where you are in the country, it's nice to see, it's nice to see ensembles getting together and doing it again. Yeah. And slowly, a lot of that stuff is trickling, is trickling out. So Yeah, and you know, like the uh, Music City Mystique, I really like how their virtual part one with all the lighting that they did. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the Matrix, I saw them. Mm-hmm. And uh, those the, the ramps that they had, those props, those yeah. are super cool. Everybody, everybody should go uh, should go seek that stuff out because it's starting to you know be more visible out there. Yeah, speaking of seeking that stuff out, you came out with like on your YouTube channel, mm-hmm. kind of like a, a short summary and yeah. links. I you know basically I figured since I do it anyway, um, all the time because I'm I'm a fan at heart, you know like I search I search for indoor clips, just regular drumline clips, even from all over the world almost every day Um, I put together on my YouTube channel just like a little like here's what I found go check it out you know and it it has links to all the all the different videos and um, I think I'm going to keep doing that periodically as I as I put together like a little cluster of uh, you know have a good little group to to put out because I know that not everybody is as geeky about it as uh, as I am yeah yeah I saw the first one and I I like the little synopsis that you put at the beginning Mm -hmm. of each clip uh, that you're introing so uh, I'll uh, try to put that as a link on when I post this on YouTube. Oh, great. So without further ado. Yeah, let's get let's into get it. Let's get into it. So in sports, mm-hmm. the great ones, they go by nicknames or by one name. Mm-hmm. You have Megatron in football, mm-hmm. Calvin Johnson, wide receiver. Mm-hmm. You had Charlie Hustle in baseball, Pete Rose. You had Pele in soccer. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the marching arts. We have someone like that. Oh, yeah. And go ahead. You, you know this gentleman more than I. Go ahead. You know, I was thinking about how we were going to introduce um, our guest today. And everything I came up with was um, fell short. So I am going to forego all of that. And just let's, uh, let's welcome to the podcast Mr. Scott Johnson. A.K.A. Skojo. A.K.A. Skojo. Welcome, Scott. Welcome to the shop. Thanks, guys. I'm happy to be here. And we are very happy to have you here. So uh, as we get into this, mm-hmm. a couple questions I got to ask. The Raiders, is our defense going to step up this year? Or We need a new defense. <laughs> we need a whole new defense to step up this year. The offense is fine. I think the, off- I think the offense is great. It's Yeah, the defense is a little bit of a problem. They're young. They were young last year, so we'll get a couple of vets in there hopefully, and who knows, you know? And- and we need to get Derek Carr like a true number one receiver because every time we get one, they either get injured before the season or they just fall yep. short. So yep. we'll I see what happens. But I know people don't want to hear about uh, football. <laughs> about an average football team. Yeah, I, I grew up. I grew up a Raider fan, guys. Just so you know. 
when you get like the two Raider fans that exist in the world on the same podcast, you have to t- you have to talk a little Raiders, right? <laughs> we, I guess it's a we it's have a to given. we have to talk Raiders. If you were to see that new stadium, you would you would realize. Scott, are you are you um, or have you or are you going to make any treks? I guess you haven't, but you how are you going, planning on making any treks to Vegas to see them? Um, I'm sure I will. Um, nothing's planned. I mean, I had season tickets in Oakland ever since I came back from LA, so we go to the games all the time. But um, when they moved to Vegas, I figured. I'm not going to keep my season tickets. I could have, you know, the people who had them up in Oakland had the first rights to season tickets in Vegas, but it was just one of those things where I, it wasn't worth it to me to, to get the season tickets, but I know if I go there, I can, there's going to be seats, <laughs> you know, if you go to Vegas. I have a, I have a vague memory. Did you get those season tickets when I was there, like in 94, 95? Was that around the time? Yeah, that, it was 95. That... I think when they came, because I think they came back in 96. Yeah, they came back in 96. Did you have to pay the did, did you have to pay the PSL? Oh boy, did I ever! Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not a big fan of the PSLs, you know. That was a lot of money too back then. Well, it's a lot of money now too, but yeah. But we had really good seats, and yeah, we 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 did it right. Oh yeah, I I had uh, I had bought a couple games for me before, and I loved your seat. I loved your seat so much that I went and I got season tickets on my own, like on the other side of the fifty from from where you oh, had really? your seats. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So I had season tickets there for a few years, but then it you know it just got. I couldn't, from making the trek from Southern California all the mm-hmm. time, I, I kind of had to let them go. And then, of course, when I, when, of course, when I let them go, that's the year that they won the playoffs. So, <laughs> but you know, Murphy's Law, right? <laughs> of course. Okay. So the other question I have is, when you're sitting there on a par three with a water <laughs> hazard in front of you, do you tee up with it like a Titleist Pro V, or do you have separate water balls? Are you like the rest of us that carry balls specifically for the water hazards to hit over? Strixon balls, and that's because we had a bass drummer in the Blue Devil drum line back in. Oh God, I'm going to get it wrong, but I'm going to say the mid '90s, maybe, maybe no, probably later than that. But he's now the uh, the head of Strixon sales department in Florida. And after we won 2019, he sent me a couple of cases of Strixon golf balls, and it says the number 19 in, and then it spelled out the word 19, so it's 19 and 19. So I have my signature golf balls that he sent me. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So it was a uh, yeah. Phil, Phil's a great guy. He, was, he played bottom base for us. And yeah, I know, I can't remember the year, but someone will know out there. That's awesome. I, I love golf too. And uh, they're actually a couple miles down from where I live. They're building a uh, top golf. So if you, next time you come to Southern California, we're going to have to go hit that up. You know, and I've never done that, but I've heard great things about it. And as much as I love golf, I mean, everywhere I've been, they just don't have it there. You know, they didn't have it in the Bay Area. They don't have it where I'm at now. So, huh? Yeah, same, same, with, same with me. But uh, other than that, you know, you know what the best type of golf is, right? Free golf. Free golf. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, when you come down south, we're going to have to definitely hook it up and uh, go, for, go buy some golf. Sounds for good. our audience, if if, uh, if any of our audience is ever at a, uh, a drum corps show or an indoor drumline show, and they're curious about what where the, the best golf courses are nearby, go find Scott. Yes. And ask him. Yes. Because I'm sure he knows, no matter where we are in the country, or the world maybe. We could do a whole ep- we could do a whole episode on the golf game ver- around indoor drum line contest. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if anybody out there listening has any golf hookups, please send them our way. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Now we're talking. So, uh, anyways, on to the important stuff now. So, we know that you that kind of you've grown up in the in the Blue Devils organization. You marched there in the seventies. Uh, what was your last year as a marching member? Because I I think I think some, it's something different than what it actually is. 
My last year marching in Blue Devils was 1979. 1979, okay. I exiled in the 70s. I could have marched um, in 80 if the rule was what it is now, that bonus year, because my birthday's in June. It's in late June, but um, at that time it wasn't, which was a good thing. I mean, I, I aged out in 79. But I marched in, a, I marched in a smaller drum corps for many years before Blue Devils, too, so that wasn't my first group when I marched. I was close. I thought it was like 1980, so it's 79. Yeah, 79. Okay. Nowadays, I don't think you see it so much, but were the rivalries, as, was there, there real intense rivalries in the 70s as, uh, like, I, I picture? Much more intense than today. And the reason is, I mean, I mean, today, because of the internet, because of, you know, we didn't have cell phones back then. You didn't have a camera on your phone. You didn't have any of that stuff. And it was your, that was your competition, you know? I mean, it was always the Blue Devils Vanguard, you know, where I grew up. Um, I grew up in a town called Hayward, and uh, the group, the organization that I marched with, it was literally 30 miles from Santa Clara and 30 miles from Concord. We're right in the middle, <laughs> so it was like, which way are you gonna go? But um, it was it was intense. The drummers, I think, got along better than anybody else, to be honest, just because we all like to drum. But this is before indoor drum lines. You know, now there's so many crossovers of guys who march together in indoor lines that are now during the summer, which I think is extremely healthy. I think it's awesome. You know, but um. So the rivalries, um, I think the alumni has more rivalries than the actual members do, to be honest. From what I hear from all my friends who I march with, how come they're beating you again? What's going on? I go, whoa, chill, relax. It's all good. So, so why the Blue Devils? That's a, okay, is this where we're going to start? Do you remember? Oh, absolutely. I remember completely. Let's remember. go. I marched, in a, I marched in a drum corps called the Royal Airs in the early 70s, um, taught by a gentleman named Bob Kalkoffin who was the mentor for the Santa Clara Vanguard drum line in the 70s. And um, also by a guy named Ron Mokler, who I still see today, by the way, he still shows up at drum corps shows, who marched with Bob in the Troopers before Bob went on to Santa Clara. So Ron came out to California, was our main instructor. And um, we ended up merging with the Stockton Commodores in 1974 because we were too small, they were too small, so we're going to make this power core, take it to DCI. It was my first time in DCI, it was 1974 with you know, the drum corps. Uh, DCI started in 72, as most of us know. But so the first year I was there was, was 1974. And uh, we took 13th. We didn't make finals. The Royal Commodores did not make finals. So um, the next year, they folded. They couldn't do it financially. It was over. So 75 rolls around. Um, and Bob Kalkoffin got a hold of me and said, come on. So I, I think mom drove me to Santa Clara rehearsal in 1975. And I was at the first couple of rehearsals with them. And um, my dad decided to build a family room on that year. And he goes, hey, what are the chances of you staying home this summer? Because every summer I was gone since I was like, you know, a kid, five years old. I was doing something drum corps related. And um, I go, why? And he goes, I really need your help this summer. We're going to do this family room. And I think this would be a good year to do it. And so I didn't do drum corps in 75. I didn't do Santa Clara, which to me is still one of the best drum lines ever in my book. <laughs> if you haven't checked out the recordings, it's that. That, that separated clarity for that time, especially. But I, but I didn't march in Santa Clara in 75, and all my friends that I marched with in the smaller drum corps, the Royal Airs in the early 70s, most of them went to Blue Devils in, in 1975. So 76 rolls around, and I was gonna go to Santa Clara. I mean, I was, I was pretty much already in, but I couldn't do the summer until all my friends are going, you can't handle the pressure. Blue Devils are up and rising, and they were just literally giving me crap. <laughs> So to shut them up, I'm going, all right, let's go. I'll go with you guys. Let's go. And I grew up with these guys, you know, so they were my buds. They were my brothers. And so I went to Blue Devils in 76. So it's crazy if you think about those 
life decisions where if my dad, if we didn't build our family room on, I could have been at Santa Clara forever. I could have not continued teaching, you know, I mean, who knows, right? It's, it's crazy. I wouldn't have met my wife possibly. What was it, what was it like being a Blue Devil then? You know, like the first championship ever, the first drum title ever. Um, I think, I think most people have a good picture of like the float years on identity wise, as far as like, but, but that, but that period, you know, your period before that, what was it like being in the core? Those, those traditional blue devil uniforms with 76. Yeah. That's the first year we got them. Yeah. The open front end. That was the first year we got the cadet style jackets. Um, matter of fact, that first tour, the uniforms weren't even in yet. So we had, had light blue button collared shirts that we did a first tour in. And back then when you, you would do a first tour and a second tour, first tour was usually LA, Oregon, Washington, you come home for two to three weeks and you did the national tour back in the day. But, um, we didn't have the uniforms till the second tour. Um, the drum staff was Rick Odello and Ron Mickey. That was it. Two people. They ran the entire percussion section, <laughs> you know, and it was always a real small staff. I mean you know, one or two horn people, one or two visual people, you know, one or two color guard people, two, two percussion people. That was, that was the entire staff back in those days. Now it's, now it's the snare techs, right? It's that many people for just the snare line. But it was, it was very different. It was very, um, local. Everybody lived close by. Uh, we did it. I mean, rehearsals back then. Um, and I think you guys talked about this, I'm sure with some other people already, but you know, we did two days starting in October, two nights a week and a Sunday. You know, so you rehearsed all season, all year long for August, you know, and you take a month off or so, and then you come back and you start over. So everybody knew everybody, everybody lived close by. Um, so you were just, I mean, you were just, you know, I'm still friends with all those guys from the 76 line more than I am from all the decades after that, just because of what we went through and because of that. Um, we really didn't know, I don't think, how good we were because I didn't, I never did a big drum corps before other than, you know, my 13th place corps before that. I watched a lot of lines. I remember I watched in Santa Clara, all the 75. I went to some shows and watched the drum lines and I was going, God, this is what I really want to do. This is it. I want to do this. I, I got to do this. And I didn't know we were actually becoming that until we're getting close to DCI. And have we lost? Yeah, I think we, we lost one prelim show. You know, we're going, wow, we got a shot at this. We got a shot, you know, and, and we were pretty happy. It was the first year with 10 snares. We had 10 snares that year. That's the first year. Usually no one ever had 10 snares yet, you know? And that's when the term the wall actually was created for the snare line. We were called the wall. Oh, really? For that year? My blue double jacket has the wall on it <laughs> that I had made in 76. You know, that's what it says, the wall. And it says the blue crew on the back because I thought blue devils was a weird name because I grew up hating them. So I put blue crew, C-R-E-W on the back of my jacket. <laughs> so yeah, I know the early days and it's, um, we rehearsed all year long, you know, two nights a week and a Sunday, every week. And, and, uh, Odello was there until when? Rick Odella was the caption head um, before I got there. He was the caption head 74, 75. I got there 76. He was the caption head 76, 77. Um, 78 was his last year. And then the last couple of weeks of 78, um, he brought in Bob Kalkoffin. And Rick's still thing. And we, and we won 76 and 77. We won the core and we won drums. And Rick's, and we weren't having a good year in 78. But a lot of guys aged out finally. There were just three of us left in the snare line from the glory days and um so we had a lot of new blood in there and it just wasn't as good as it could have been so rick i don't want to say he panicked but he hired bob kalkoffin to come in the last literally the last three weeks of the tour and his whole reasoning was i don't know how to win it three years in a row but he does so we're going to get this guy so bob came on and i knew bob from when i was 
12 years old. He wrote my first snare solo for me in this other small drum corps, you know, so it was like, all right, Bob's here. All right, Clino Bob, you know, so he was kind of, he took over and he was the captain's head in 79. Okay. He took over for Rick Ricks last year was 78. But an interesting thing about that era, um, 78, our, our snare tech, who was with us in 76 and 77, Steve Corey was a phenomenal drummer. He came from uh, the Troopers and then he also marched in Santa Clara in the 74, 75 line. He was like the most muscled guy I know that could play faster than anything you've ever seen. And uh, he was our snare tech. Uh, so I learned so much from him in 76 and 77. And then right before tour in 78, um, something came up and he, he bailed. He had to leave us. So, and back then, I mean, you didn't come in for a week and go out for a week. You, know, you were every day, right? Staff, I mean, you, you were there every day. Um, and uh, so, and I, I will say in a panic, Jerry Seawright, the director for the Blue Devils, we didn't have a snare tech. So Jerry hires me. I'm in the snare line. He hires me to be the snare tech along with my best man at my wedding, Terry Shelberg, who is also in the snare line. He hired us to teach the line from inside the line, which meant we're doing the same thing we always did, but now we're getting paid. So I got paid a monthly check in 78 and 79 my last two years as a membership for Blue Devils. That was pretty cool. I was a professional snare drummer. <laughs> yeah, I didn't uh, I didn't even know they had that was possible. I thought it was like NCAA rules that, you know, if you're a marching member, you, you, you can't get paid. <laughs> Well, if there were rules, I didn't, I didn't know them either. <laughs> now, in, in the 70s, you know, you guys win in 76. Is that, was there already a, that Blue Devil swagger? Was it already there? Or did you guys, did it start, you know, building after that year? I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it started halfway through the 76 season when we started to realize, hey, we could be really good. You know, it was so crazy back then. Whenever we would do a run through, and this shows you how, why everybody hated the snare line and still probably does hate snare lines every now and then. We were, we were treated differently than everybody else. And what I mean by that is Rick Odello would pull one snare, uh, snare drummer out of the line at a time to watch the run through up in the stands. Just so we can see how cool this thing was, right? He never did it for the tenors, never did it for the basses, never did it for the marching timpani, never did it for the cymbals, never, never did it for the sopranos or the horns, but the snare line, Scott, come here, man, you got to check out this run through. <laughs> So I got to go sit upstairs as a 16-year-old marching member going, all right, this is cool. <laughs> Scott, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to admit this, but there were times uh, when you were there when I marched that I broke my head on purpose just so I could change it and watch, watch the run-through. <laughs> just so I could sit up front and, I know, and do that. I know. You weren't alone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too funny. <laughs> that's awesome. I, lo I lost my train of thought there for a second. You made me... Oh, you, got, you, you, were, you, were asking about, you were asking about 78. We won 76, we won 77. Uh, there was better drum corps. You know, there was better drum corps that year. You know, that was, wasn't that 10th, 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 first, second, third? I think the final placement, it was a 10th, a 10th, and a 10th. Santa Clara, Bannon, us maybe, I think, right? I, I, saw, I saw a video from that 78 retreat, and it was like Phantom and Vanguard back and forth. And then at the end when they announced Vanguard wins in 78, this is something that, you know, we didn't see in Meyer. You just see all the Vanguard guys going nuts during retreat because usually it's all it used to be regimented and now i mean if you go look at the video they're like i don't know just kind of going crazy but that's cool like i mean they, they worked so hard we never we never stood still i mean we, the first time we won in 76 i remember the core going nuts and i don't know if that was done before that by anybody else but you know we were the jazz kids right we had the long hair and the earrings and we could be cool and so we just everybody went absolutely freaked out i mean and See, that's the interesting stuff because 
Blue Devils has such a, such a strong identity, and they've had it for a really long time. But how how that how that comes to pass, how that forms, is you know, it's a combination of a bunch of different things, and it's really interesting to hear that that started in the '70s with you guys. I mean, you guys were creating it. You guys weren't thinking about creating it, but no, you no, of were. Course. Right. Right. Um, you talked about you and Terry um, sort of being player coaches, um, but then you moved on to actually being staff members, right, and running the line. How many years did you guys do that? Um, well, 78, 79, we were marching in the line. Uh, the, the best thing about that is back then, all the courts had to do retreat. So after the show, all the courts would go line up and go back onto the field for the award ceremony, right? Not Terry and I. We got to go to the bus, get changed, to go do critique and talk to the judges. So we got to be pretty good friends with the judges. The two years we were marching. I mean, even to the point where the last year in 79, uh, my age out year, we're on the field in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and Cosmo, who was a drum judge at the time, walks up and he goes, you're still marching? <laughs> and I go, yep, stand here the whole damn show. Let's go. I want you to stand right here the whole show. <laughs> you know. So we had this rapport with the judges that we could actually talk with them and bullshit with them and have a good time. But um. Terry and I, we took over in 79, I mean, excuse me, in 80. After the 79 season, Bob left. And so the weird thing about that is 80, 81, those two years, the, the drum staff was all guys who aged out in 79. There was four of us. Terry and myself, a guy named Scott Ken, who was kind of the tenor guy, and then Tom Nanny, who was our pit instructor at the time for our two keyboards that we had that turned into four keyboards back then. And that was it. You know? And so here's four 22-year-olds with you know a defending champion drum corps trying to win a title and we did in 80 we won the title you know the drum line was rough <laughs> you know 81 it was a little bit rougher terry did terry was the main writer um we all got our little licks in there but terry was the main composer arranger and um if you listen to that 81 show it's for its time it was so outside the box we didn't know how to clean it I had no concept on how to clean it. We, we tried everything and, you know, we were too proud to change things a lot like nowadays happens, you know, so we just, you're going with the guys, have fun, you know, and it was, it was pretty rough. It was pretty dirty. I think we were, God, I want to say eighth or ninth in drums in 81. I don't know. Somebody knows out there, but, and then 82, um, we're getting ready for the season to start up. And this is still back when we're still going twice a week on a Sunday, right? So September, October, you start getting stuff together and getting ready for rehearsals. Jerry Seawright calls and he goes, hey, I'd like you to come over for a meeting, you know? And I go, yeah, sure. And Jerry Seawright was the director. And I walk in and there's Tom Float. <laughs> Tom Float's there. And I knew Tom from Spirit, you know? Right, you knew who he was. Just from drum corps. I mean, we didn't hang out that much. Was, back then you couldn't. You didn't know, no internet, no phones, whatever. So, you know, you see him during the summer. Oh, that's that tall drum guy. Yeah, they're really good. Spirit was good. Etobicoke Crusaders, yeah, they were really good, you know? Because he taught them one of the years, 77, with, when we competed against him. I knew, I knew Tom, I knew of him, and we didn't really know each other that well. But I'm going, hey, what, what are you doing here, you know? <laughs> and Jerry goes, oh, I think he could help us out. And uh, that was a real interesting couple days, because Tom was here for a couple days, and I was a snare tech, you know, through all those years. And then Tom shows up, and the original plan was Terry was still going to write, and Tom was going to fix some of the stuff to be cleaned easier. Um, and so me and Tom were talking, and I go, well, hey, man, welcome to the team, you know, looking forward to it. And, I, and he, he goes, so um, what's up, man? I'm the snare guy. And I go, I'm the snare guy. <laughs> and 
And he goes, well, we should get some sticks and go around the corner and drum. And I go, absolutely we should. <laughs> so we did. We did. We got a couple we got a couple of video of oh, that. Oh man, I've <laughs> no, never no, I've never even no. heard this. Oh, uh, there's no video of that. Not too many people know the story. So so we 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 literally went around the corner and just started drumming. And you know, I was really I did individuals every year I did drum corps. You know, I mean I had really fast hands and I, you know, I still try to try to drum every now and then. But what was really fascinating to me, Tom was a friggin' drum machine. I mean, the way he placed in a 32nd note compared to the 16th note compared to the eighth note compared to the, you know, that whole philosophy of vertical alignment was new to me. You know, we, we were teaching by repetition. Do it again. Do it again. I think that diddles early. Try to try to change that, you know, instead of no, put it to a check pattern. Let's put it to a grid. You know, I, we never did that before Tom showed up. Tom, Tom brought math to the Blue Devil Drum Line. Yeah, he brought, he brought, he brought the math to us. And all of a sudden, the weird thing was the first couple camps we show up and Tom has redone the music without telling Terry <laughs> and hands it to the guys and Terry left. He bailed. He quit. He goes, this isn't, this isn't music, you know, and he got pissed off and left. Meanwhile, the drum line was cleaner than it's ever been. You know, and we got a lot of horses from Spirit of Atlanta where Tom taught before that. A lot of guys came over from Spirit to join that drum line. So we had his influence. We had his veterans along with the Blue Devil Vets. And, and uh, yeah, that's, that started the, the, the Tom era with us. You 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 talk about floating uh, the way his mind works at, as far as the math and all that stuff. I uh, I I'm a float guy. I marched with him for three years, and I remember he'd take the simplest exercise, like we would do, sixteen on time, and like dig it at, 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 just you know yep. moving the rest. Yep. And it's like okay, cool. But then he he would change it up, like all right, diddle sticking, alternate sticking, just something yep. Yep. to get the mind working different. Yep. Yeah. And then you realize how all the timing actually fits in there. So without changing the interpretation. That's the important thing, without changing the interpretation. I think kids today don't even realize what, I mean, that that, that that thinking of things as like a system, you know, and a progression and the math and all of that stuff, um, that is the foundation for a lot of stuff today. Kids don't realize that a lot of that, you know, was, was Tom's innovation. Well, the, to me, the, the biggest thing that the kids know today that relates to Tom is the word grid. I mean, Tom, when he first, you know, he was at this meeting for the weekend or whatever it was, and he flew back to um, Atlanta where he was living, packed up his stuff and came out to California. He lived with me for like the first four or five months because he didn't have a place yet. And I had a bachelor pad. It was just me at this house. So, um, so it was Tom and I, and he brings out this very old, well, it wasn't old then, but a computer generated graph of accents, diddles, grace notes, and it was, it was the grid. And I'm going, what is that? And he's going, well, check it out. If you just play the same pattern over and over and over by moving the accent, by moving the diddle, then you insert that instead of the grace note. But what, what I realized in looking at this thing, I mean, this, this was the beginning of the grid. This, I mean, this was the grid that he's already done, and now I'm seeing it. I, know, I don't know if I was the first person to see I don't know if he did it with the Spirit of Atlanta. I'm not really sure. But to see it on paper, everything was vertically aligned. Every from the eighth notes to sixteenth notes to thirty-second notes to six couplets to triplets to you name it. And it was like, oh, this is how we're going to get clean, you know. So him and I, we just sit on my coffee table and drum forever all the time. Back when he lived with me. You talk about that grid being written down, the original one. I picture that that's like in the 
briefcase on in Pulp Fiction when they open it up and there's that golden glow. It's like that's the original, you know, floats grid. You know, that's why that's what's so important to get their hands on. You know, yeah, I was, you know, and it's interesting because um, you, you know, one of the things I had thought about coming into this discussion was what it must have been like to be a Blue Devil, be responsible for what the Blue Devils were before Float got there and then having him come in. And it's actually really interesting to hear that you guys had to live together, you know, and I mean, I'm sure you weren't hard, you weren't hard to get along with, but I also know you're competitive, you know, and, and all of that stuff. And also your friend, Terry, you know, didn't have the the best time with it. What was that like, you know? Well, Terry, like I said, he quit the first camp when you realize the music was, wasn't what, cause we were play, back then you played the same songs year after year. You know, you, you do a show two years in a row and it wasn't a big deal. Right. <laughs> and we were doing a lot of the same music from 81 that we're doing in 82 and Tom took it and float ties it or whatever you want to call it and changed, you know, it was still the, the same chart, same, whatever, same snare feature, tenor features, but it was all definitely redone to be able to be played clean, you know, um, more metrically lined up, I guess you could say. Um, the, I was glad that I stuck around, you know, as far as like the, the history of Blue Devils, if you want to look at it that way, as far as the, the, that 70 group, you know, into the 80s now. Because if I would have left too, when Terry left, mm-hmm. I don't know what, it would have been a whole different thing. It would have been the spirit of Atlanta's drum line, you know, probably the, the guys that came right. over because that's what Tom was doing. So I still had that Blue Devil influence, character, swagger, whatever you want to call it, that um, when Tom was there. To me, the, one of the fun things, and if you listen to the recordings of like 1982, um, when Tom said, I'm doing the snare line, he goes, I'm the snare guy, you know, and I, real, and I realized with the math way, the way he drummed, I'm going, okay, yes, you, you, you need to do the snares. I go, but I'm doing the tenors, and I go, and I want a snare book on one line, and I moved it around the drums that year. So the 82 tenor mm-hmm. book was literally written as a snare part that accompanied the snare line, right? And I go, and I want flams, I want flam drags, I want flam taps. And back then, tenors didn't play that, you know. And we, we had these five studs in the tenor line that year. Glenn, Glenn Crosby was one of them, you know. And, and yep. we literally, I mean, I, I spent hours moving stuff around drums in a different way to play flam patterns on tenors. And that was the first year people started scraping diddles and all that stuff that the guys in the line kind of came up with. So, But that, that, that line, um, I think that tenor line started a lot of, amazing tenor lines after that that I was associated with. Not not because of me so much, just because that that era happened and Tom showed up and you know and I was a snare guy now teaching tenors. <laughs> so I wanted right. the beef. Was 82's that's the original Q5, correct? That's correct. Very good. Yes. That's yeah. the original Q5. Yeah. The original Q5. So so um as far as like uh well, let me ask this. At that point were you just did you just keep doing Blue Devils because they kept having you back? Or did you know you were like, this is a place I want to be? Like, I'm a Blue Devil. This is where I want to be for a while. I want to do this for a while. Or were you just a young kid, like, you know, because you were successful and um, they kept having you back, you just kept doing the job? I just kept doing the job. Yeah. I just kept, you know, and, and the joke was with, um, I have two older sisters and one younger who twirled the pond, which is how I got involved in the pageant studio. And the joke was, when are you getting a real job? You know? <laughs> and I'm going, no, I'm good. You know, I was able to, you know, make a living teaching paradiddles. You know, and I never thought about the future. I just kept thinking about, all right, I'm going to just keep doing this and see what happens. And it wasn't about 
I did not predict anything after that. It was just having, we were having a good time and I was still doing drum corps even, even though I couldn't march anymore. Could you notice that difference from like the 81 to the 82 line? Was there like, a, in your eyes, was there a notable difference? Oh, huge, huge. Absolutely. We went from a lower of the, you know, finals drum line to contender in one year, you know, mainly because of clarity. It was all about clarity and the way, and we, we marched 12 snares that year in 82. You know, I still joke to this day, that was four too many. We would have won if we had, if we had eight, <laughs> but uh, we had 12 snares. So, so 82 is the first year of paradox. Yeah, to me, that's an iconic drum yeah, solo. Yeah. When, when he first handed that out, I mean, had, had you any idea that that was going to become that? I mean, because it was different than you would see in the past. Or was it just, okay, this is the drum solo? Yeah, yeah, that's, it was just more music. All right, let's learn this. You know, that stuff happens later, I think. You know, you don't really know what's going to work and what's not going to work till you get a crowd in front of you or something like that. You know, it's, that, that's when you're going to go, oh, people like this. Okay, this is cool. We're just teaching beats. You know, I remember Tom, we were sitting down um, at my house when he lived with me and writing a bunch of that stuff out. And I helped a little bit. It was, it was mostly Tom, obviously, with the beats, but we'd come up with some split flam parts and stuff. And he goes, hey, man, I'll try a split flam thing. And I go, cool, I'm going to play this, you know, and I'd play a pattern and then base it off that and whatever. But it was a, it was, it was a small collaboration. Mostly it was Tom. But um, yeah, we were just, just teaching, teaching beats. We had no idea, you know, other than, okay, we got to get them clean. We got to get them clean. You know, the blinders were on. Let's go. <laughs> Clean beats. Now, I've only heard them on, on tape. The Bridgman, were they as intimidating sounding in person as they were on, on tape? Like, because to me, they had like a full set. Is it the 15-inch drums or the way they played? Just, I don't know. It's just, was that like, what's a good way to put this, uh, that hump to get over? Did you, was that like a goal? No, I was, well, no, because we were way too competitive. They were cheaters, you know, in our eyes. <laughs> they hung their rolls. They didn't play in tempo. They still had straps. Everyone else had carriers, you know. They didn't have drill because they had the straps on still. And you listen back to it now, and it's going, that stuff's really cool. <laughs> and, I mean, they're, they're, they, they all look about 35 years old, too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Pat Patrillo is a great friend of mine, and he marched in those lines. And so we, we talk about that a lot, about the East Coast versus the West Coast and interpretations and stuff, yeah. And on the other end of the spectrum, a very young Larry Cohen marched Absolutely. one of those lines, yeah. did he not? Yeah. yeah. Larry came from Bayonne to come to Blue Devils. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So 80, you guys get through 82. You go, like you said, up to contenders. You get to 83. And what a lot of people don't realize in that tick era, I mean, that 83 line had the, the biggest margin of victory in, in percussion. Is that correct? Very good. Yeah. Finals, we, um, that, this was the last year for tick. And for those youngins out there, a judge would walk around with a clipboard, and when he heard a mistake, he would literally raise the clipboard and write on it the line that to hear the mistake, tap, accent, flam, diddle, snare, tenor, bass. A snare was a line, a tenor was a T, a bass was an L, keyboard was a K. And if they heard an air, they would write it for where it was. And then after, one ch after the opener, they'd draw a line on the paper so you knew where the airs were. Okay, we had three airs in the opener. We had no airs in the ballad. We had, you know, they would separate. Back then, you had separated songs in your show mainly, right? But um, that year, um, the line was most of the guys from 82. You know, they all stuck around. They still had another year. It was probably one of the most experienced lines I've ever been with for that era, especially. And it was, I got to be honest, those guys, the line was phenomenal. 
You know, they put on the, the Superman jackets, they called them, you know, the, the uniform, and they'd go out there and just not tick. But during rehearsals, I would be yelling at them more than I yelled at any other drumline in the history of the Blue Devils because they were lazy and they didn't care. And they would always say, we'll do it tonight. You know, we'll be good tonight, you know, and I'm going, ah! I'm just freaking out because they, they, they sucked during the day. And then they go out at night and they smoke the show and they go, how was that? I'm going, yeah, that was great. <laughs> you know, so it was a, it was a very experienced line. It was a very cocky line, very confident line. And um, yeah, finals, we won with a 17-9. No, excuse me, 18-9. We had 11 ticks. We had an 18-9. And second place was Phantom Regiment with a 17-9. So it was a full point spread. And that was with two judges on the field back then. So we saw two judges on the field. Yeah, to me, that 83 line is special because that was my first exposure to drum corps. I, not until 1987, but that, uh, one of my high school classmates, he had a cassette. He's all, here, you like drumming? Here, listen to this. And it was like a cassette that had 83 Devils, 83 Cadets, 83 Suncoast, and 83 Madison Scouts. And w once I heard Blue Devils, uh, I, I, could, I just wore that tape out. And the, the part that always sticks in my mind is there's this clean roll and i want to say it's uh, one more time chuck korea and the release and the sticks in is just like the the, the cleanest thing i've I'd ever heard you know and i was like well how many how many how many people are playing this and when mm -hmm. they told me it was like nine snares nine or ten snares like was, i had a hard time believing that you know 14 year old me and after that i was hooked well that was also the year 83 where um walking onto the field to pump the guys up i would do the, my, a traditional handshake that I do with each member of the battery and slap their drum, you know, and as they're walking onto the field, I'm like screaming at them, you know, men love you, women love you, everybody paid to see you guys play. I smell smoke, I smell blue smoke, it's your smoke, you know, and that's where that term blue smoke came from, is the 83 line, walking on the field at all the shows, just to pump them up because I knew they were lazy during the day. <laughs> if you ever meet Nat Barusha, if you ever see Nat Perush again asked him. He was a section leader in 83. He was a center snare that year. And they would, they would get away with murder during the day. I got to tell you. But then they'd show up at night and just smoke it. It was like, okay, we're good. <laughs> well, you know, you know what's funny? So like for me, uh, growing up on those, those Blue Devil drum lines of the 80s, even though the, the internet didn't exist back then, I got that vibe from the Blue Devil. So, that, so from the outside, that was part of like the identity was that you guys could, you guys were so good that you could just flip a switch and play. Clean. No, they did. That's, they did. you know, like sort of like the, 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 uh, the, the, the poor, like the very, you know, uh, uninformed audience point of view where we were just looking at it like, whoa, these guys are so amazing. You know, um, that's, you know, that's really, that's really, really interesting. What, why, um, why did they get rid of the tick system? Because they wanted the they wanted the lines to be more musical. My interpretation, mm -hmm. all right. So the reason I think mm -hmm. they got rid of it, and we figured it out. We were dominating in '83, you know. And so the next DCI meetings are going, okay, well, we can't do that again. We got to figure out another way to do it. So right. that that was '84 was the first year of the non-tick system. Little did they know. <laughs> little did they know. Well, it was a little incentive too on our part. I got to be honest. <laughs> You know, they're going to they're going to take that away from us. OK, well, we're going to show them, you know, that was the whole mentality with Tom and I. And what I wonder, I mean, once again, this is sort of pre-Internet period. So you didn't really know how upset people were getting other than your sort of local circle. But that was a seismic shift in oh, yeah. in judging. It was huge. 
And people talk about it now as being this massive thing. And um, was it a big deal or were you guys like, hey, we're clean, we'll figure it out? Um, we didn't change much, you know, because we assumed, to be honest, the judges weren't going to know how to change much. They're still going to reward clean drumming. You know, it was, the same, it was the same guys. I mean, it's not like they brought in a whole new batch of, of judges that were more musically oriented than, you know, tick oriented. It was the same guys. So it's like, we didn't, we, we didn't really change much that I, that I can remember. I do remember we were able to take more chances and start to play a little bit higher, you know, and not worry about a tick as much just because it was a little more free and you weren't, you weren't going to get called out for that, you know, as much. So we did start to raise heights a little bit here and there. By raising heights, you could also play lower, and so you had a little bit more dynamic extremes, and so that kind of helped out. You talk about the the change for to be more musical in '84. It seems like, and if, if you listen to recordings, not, not just you guys, but everybody between '83 to '84, it seems like the front ensembles really came up more in '84 as far as writing for front ensemble stuff. Is that a, would that be a correct statement? I, I would think so. I mean, 1980 was the first year you could ground timpani. Keyboard still had to carry them. <laughs> you still had a, a marching vibraphone and a marching bell player, and you used to have five timpani. But in '80, you could actually have one person play timpani and actually have them on the front sidelines the whole time. You know, that was the first you can ground equipment, and by grounding, they mean set it on the ground. And then it was was it '82 when the first time you could actually put keyboards on? I think it was '82 when the first time you could actually okay, you can now have what's called the pit. You know, you can put keyboards on the front side lines, set them on the ground. They don't have to carry them. So you could actually have bigger instruments now and more legit instruments. So yeah, by 84, yeah, the pits were just starting to gel. Absolutely. You guys come out in 84 drumline wise and even core wise, like full in full swing. Uh, you guys repeat is the drum, you know, drumline champs. Was it, uh, I, what's a good way to put this? Was it a battle all the way to the end? to win drums in 84 because I, I i guess it was the the 27 lancers were second correct no idea you can't remember yeah nope, yeah no yeah idea. i don't remember i mean i remember we won four years in a row 83 84, 85 86 you know the details of those years we were just doing our thing you know and the, the, the thing we did back in in those days is the same thing we do today you know we we i tell the guys in the line even to this day you have no control over the judges number you know, I told George that when he was when I came to Blue, I was like, "We have no control over what the judge does. We have no control over what the other drum lines do. The only thing we can control is how well we play." So that's that's what we're going to worry about. We're just going to worry about how well we can play and how how we can get us to perform to the top of our ability. Whatever happens, happens. You know, so it never was. I never thought about that as far as the competition thing. And yeah, I mean, I'm a statistics guy, and I admit that I, I keep stats on everything. My golf game, for example, I keep stats on every judge that judged us, the numbers they gave us, what place we were in, their, you know, substantial comments. My computer is full of years of judges, you know, of just what they've done just because I like stats. I'm a, a sports guy. I love stats. <laughs> and that kind of came from that. But um, we just taught. We just kept teaching, you know. We, I didn't have laptops on tour back then. We just kept teaching the beats, and hopefully they were rewarded. You know, and it, it that's uh that's cool to hear because i hear stuff about 83 and i hear stuff about 85 but 84 i really don't hear a lot of stuff just like you know rob serrat will tell stories every once in a while on the page and it's cool to hear the insight on 84 uh just because it's like i don't know it's like the second year of the four peat but then 85 happens 
and it seems like a whole bunch of stuff happened in 85 and uh, we can talk about that a little bit now you know uh the, the drums catch fire in one of the trucks was it were they in like the kitchen truck or something and they caught fire um i didn't do the tour oh no in 85 i was um hired to be in a rock and roll band called the band of gypsies it was a Jimi hendrix remake and we toured the u.s and canada so I, I did the winter, um, 85. Um, my summer tour with the rock band started, I want to say it was like May, and we were gone. And we got home from the tour, uh, my rock tour, in like late, mid-July, I think it was. And I went down to this, again, this is before cell phones. This is before all that stuff, right? And I go down to the Blue Devil office, and uh, George Kelly, who is the guy who runs the Blue Devil Bingo and ran the Blue Devil office, he's there, and he's going, Scott, where the hell have you been? <laughs> I go, hi, George. Good to see you. And he goes, we just lost to Madison Scouts last night. And I went, what? And he goes, yeah, the drum corps lost to Madison. They're falling apart. Get on a plane. Okay. <laughs> so I literally went home. I packed. I went to the airport. Um, it's funny because I was meeting the corps. I don't know if it was in Buffalo. They were somewhere up north because I could get a hold of anybody. I mean, this is a, there's no cell phones. So I knew I was trying to find someone that was going to go to the, to the show to take me to the show so I could jump on board with the Blue Devils. And um, the director knew because he would check in every day with George and George said, hey, Scott's coming on tour. He's going to meet you guys at the show. And what I ended up doing is I called Glenn Crosby and I go, hey, I got to go. I'm flying up north. Can your parents pick me up? Because they lived in Canada. I go I'll fly up there and he goes, yeah, they're going to go to the show. And I went, perfect. So I stayed at Glenn's house for a night, you know, with mom and dad. And they, they drove me to the show. I jumped on on the bus with the Blue Devils. And the first thing I did, I went on the drum bus. And I walked up to Robbie, who was a section leader at the time, Rob Surratt. And he's sitting there. And there, I mean, it's, you know, we're all buds, right? It was good to see everybody and everybody's hugging. And I grabbed him and I go, what's going on? <laughs> and he says, um, that's when we they had 10 snares. And two of the snare drummers were having some, I guess you can call it attitude problems. And he goes, eight or two, you make the call. Eight or two. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, is there going to be eight snares on that field or two? And I'm going, what did I just walk into? You know, and then I heard about the drums. The equipment truck broke down. They put all the equipment on the food truck. There's pilot lights in the food truck. They stopped at a rest stop. And all of a sudden, someone saw smoke. And something cloth-wise fell and got a hold of the pilot light. That caught fire. The drums were wood. <laughs> they caught fire. And so the, the core from what I, and I wasn't there, but the core literally sat at a rest stop and watched the food truck burning up with all the equipment in it. And they were literally drive, trying to get whatever they can to get off of there. And they got some stuff off, some of the symbols. And there's pictures of some of the symbols all charred up, I think, from what I remember. Yeah, I saw a, I saw a newspaper clipping and it's like, they're standing by a bass drum and it's all smoky and, and it's just, you know, yeah, crazy. And they um, borrowed drums after that for a show from somebody. The Velvet Knights. There's pictures of that. They're oh yeah, because like, it was uh, those. That's right. It was those. Those the powder blue. I was gonna say a light blue, right? <laughs> yeah, and that's like a totally different tuning scheme than probably what the Blue Devils were used to. Yeah, I'm back sure. Back then too, yeah. But eight or two, huh? So how did you guys handle that situation? Of course, we we get there, we do this whatever show that was, and then I'm mm -hmm. on the bus, and so I, me and Tom sit down. I'm going, what is up? And uh, apparently there was a, it was a rough year. I mean, even to the point where the drumline rebelled one year, I mean, one day, refused to practice, and they all went to the theaters to watch a movie. This is on tour. 
And Tom had to go into the theater and yell at them to get back and rehearse. Mm. And the drumline was like, it was, it was, it was a rebellion. It was really weird. And I, I wasn't there for that. I just heard these stories. Robbie, I'm sure could be better information about that, but it was just, there was just no authority. You know, there, there was just, they were, they were too loose, obviously. So of course I get there and I used to be the hard ass. And, um, so I was a hard ass again. And I go, no, we're going to work. You know, you guys suck right now. We need to get better. <laughs> and Tom goes, well, listen, he goes, we're having some issues with two of the snare drummers. He goes, I want you to take these two guys and work with them so they can get back in the line. And I go, I flew out here to work with two guys you're going to cut. <laughs> I'm going, I don't think so. <laughs> so yeah. I grabbed these two guys. We talked for a while. Um, they wanted to march, but they were just having issues of different stuff that wasn't even hands related. It was just attitude stuff. And they were just doing stuff they shouldn't have been doing until so the rest of the line right. kind of divorced them. And so I just said, all right. And Tom goes, well, you're going to have to cut them. I go, I'm going to cut them. I just show up. You want me to cut these guys two weeks before DCI finals. And he goes, yes. And I go, okay. So I sat him down and of course, one of the guys says, well, you know, my parents are coming to DCI and I go, I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, they both are aging out from what I remember, but they were done. We, we let them go right there. And then it was just crash course for the rest of that 85 season to get the line. Were they vets? No, they were both two new snare drummers. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'd heard, I'd heard stories about that, about uh, a couple guys getting cut before finals and uh, you know, I, I, I float. I, I want to say he would even say, "Hey, you, you you don't make the line until after you know finals is over. Once you're on that field of your last performance, and that's when you officially make the line." Well, times yeah. definitely changed. I mean, this was you know back. That was probably the last year we ever did anything like that. That never happened since, from what I remember. No. But Tom was um, <laughs> when he first came in '82. Um, when we would you know we have auditions right, and you cut people. And the first time I heard Tom cut somebody. Tom gets nervous when he has to give people bad news and he giggles, you know? So he's going, so dude, <laughs> he goes, I mean, you suck. <laughs> so you can't, we can't have you, you know, he's like laughing and that's just, just his nerve. He, he would get nervous and kind of giggle. And I remember the first time he did that and I'm in the room and I'm going, Tom, I'm going to cut everybody from now on. <laughs> I'll take care of it. <laughs> Cause I thought that was the wrong way to cut somebody is giggle at them and tell them they suck. You know, but that was, the, yeah. if you know, Tom, that's just Tom, right? That's what Tom, Tom is. So, yeah. uh, so I get there in 85 and he goes, all right, man, glad you're here. You got to cut these two guys. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah. So yeah. Every, every time you, you, you tell something about Floyd, I always hear it in his voice. Yo, man, I'm glad you're here Holmes. Yeah. You know, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, he definitely had a different vocabulary. He is like the coolest guy ever to like to me too. There's like nobody cooler than float. <laughs> in uh 90 or 91 uh my wife and i we got a our new, we bought a house and uh tom walks into the house for the first time he goes nice effing dump <laughs> and judy looks and i go no that's a good thing that's a good thing he likes it <laughs> and that's just the way tom talked right we all know tom has a different language than most people oh yeah it like if you if you want to eat yo homes let's go get some grease you know? slide and get some grease yeah 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 i had to interpret for him in japan one year <laughs> to the interpreter to interpret it in Japanese because <laughs> he didn't understand Tom's English. <laughs> you speak float. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and, and, and that seems that, you know, you make that cut, you guys work hard and you guys, you get that, that three peat, you got the three peat going, but you talk about uh, the, the drum line going to the movies. Yeah. That story is an interesting story. So you don't know if they really took the drum bus and they just got on the drum bus and took it over there or how do they get to the movies? 
I don't know how they got there. This is before Uber too. So um, I don't know if it was walking distance, you know. Um, I know back in the earlier 80s, in 83, for example, I mean, I had my bus license because I used to drive the equipment truck just to, when we had rehearsals on twice a week, the guy used to drive the truck there. He wasn't a drummer. He didn't have to be there. I go, dude, teach me how to drive it. I got to come. I'll drive the truck, you know. So I used to drive the truck. So I had my license. So we would we would we would grab the drum line and throw him in the bus every now and then and take him for a little spin on tour just because I could drive it and it was legal, <laughs> you know. So, but I don't know who if anybody drove them. I have I asked Robbie. <laughs> I was not part of that. <laughs> so you guys you guys get the three peat and you guys go into eighty six. Uh, did the eighty six line were there a lot of vets? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That whole time was it was vets and we kept replenishing the talent. You know, we kept getting guys younger that were going to be in with the vets. So by the time they become the vet, they're the super vets. Um, yeah, the 86 line was, again, I mean, they had hands. You know, we had hands. The guys that came to Blue Devils, they knew how to play. They could just drum from day one, you know. So it was very different from, like, when I went to Santa Clara in the 90s, for example. It was um, guys came to Blue Devils, and all you had to do is just get them to do it together. You know, figure right. out how to get him because they could all play everything, you know. Okay, yeah, but you're playing it different than him because of this, and this is what you have to do, you know. And, but they could all play everything. Mm -hmm. So we always had the talented chop guys, guys that could play stuff that wanted to come because that's what we did. You know, we were known for our notes, right? We were known for the, the harder beats or the faster beats or whatever. But yeah, 86 was there, and it was, again, it was an extremely talented line, extremely veteran, and yeah, it was a good year. And we brought back Channel One Suite and, you know, did a little flashback to my era you know, in 76 from when we won the first title. So that was a lot of fun. Did, uh, just for context, so like you were saying earlier, it's not like now where people fly in and fly out all the time. Who was on that drum staff in the early to mid-80s? I know it was you, Float, and Catherine Float. And uh, was that, that pretty much the nexus of the staff? It was the three it of us. It was the three of and us. Then, and then we had, a, we had a, Higgins Keith Higgins was in there for a while, who was a bass guy. He was actually he was section, leader section, section leader in the tenor line in 82, 83. Um, um, he, um, he, um, he came in with up the bass line, he was a bass tech. And then Rob Surratt came, he became our bass tech for a few years. Bobby Bowman came on drum staff, you know, but it was mainly Tom, myself, and Catherine. That was it. And there was like a little rotating door for someone else to come in and help out when they could. But yeah, yeah, that's yeah. A we were the three. I mean, we were on tour. We were on tour, you know, you know every, every day. day. That was, back, back then, you didn't leave tour. You got on the bus until DCI. Yeah, yeah. That's it's definitely different now. But I think it's a little healthier now that you get a chance to jump off for a little bit and then jump back on. You know. Yeah, but I still don't. I'm still stupid like that. I still, I still do more tour than anybody else, <laughs> which is crazy. But that's it's okay. that lifestyle. You know, it's the lifestyle. That's how I was raised, you know. Seriously, that's what I'm. I don't. I don't know any other way. So '86, you guys, the four Pete, and and we talked a little bit with this uh, with Kevin Murray, the drum solo, the spider visual, that actually you're the one that put that in, correct? That came from '76. '76. Yeah. Okay. Well, part of it came from '76, and our '76 solo and the Channel One Suite drum solo, we had to stick visuals that up and down and our kind of a thing and split up and whatever. And people were calling it whatever they called it, the spider. Um, and I don't remember who came up with it in 76. I have no idea. <laughs> you know, but so one of the guys, we, we came up with this little stick visual. And then so the 86 guys put it in, but they definitely modernized it a little bit and made it much more staccato and added some other stuff to it. But um, yeah, the original context came from, from the 70s. Should we talk about, uh, as we're going through the years, you know what I, what's coming next? Yeah, 87. Nope. 
<laughs> okay, let, let, let's start this off. I'd heard the 87 line was probably one of the more talented lines of those years. Is, is that a, a true statement? It, it was, yeah. Hands were ridiculous. Ridiculous. I heard, I heard, uh, I don't know, this is probably, and I think we talked with Kevin about this, that there were people that from the 86 line that couldn't make the 87 line. Do you remember anything of that? I think I'm probably wrong. Um, we had, we yeah, we had a couple of people who actually won a title, DCI and, and percussion, and didn't make it the next year. But that was, I keep thinking that was more in the 90s. But oh. it could have happened back then. I'm trying to think of going through the roll of decks right now. I don't really remember that happening too much, but in the 80s especially. So, so the 87 line, uh, you guys are cruising along. Uh, uh, maybe the show design wasn't exactly what it needed to be that year. Scott, were you cruising along on tour that year? I mean, or were you getting beat? I I don't remember. I was teaching beats. We were cleaning beats. Yeah. I mean, the whole and that's what's, I guess that's what I love about you guys and about alumni and people who follow all that stuff is the competition thing, you know, where I'm, I'm out there cleaning beats. We're out there just trying to do whatever we can. You know, I remember the outcome of 87. I remember how it ended, <laughs> but the whole journey through the season, I, it's all, we had, we had some good drummers, man. We had some great drummers. I remember that. Well, so so let me ask you this, Scott, because this is actually one of the first sort of big, 87 sort of brings up one of the, the big questions I want to ask you. Um, and you're, you've since you've been consistently doing this activity at a really high level since the 70s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, up till now, um, when you look back... We, <laughs> When you look back at like the history of drum titles, right? Because you you just mentioned the activity was changing a little bit, right? Um, there was there's this thing that happens like so Fred Sanford dominates the '70s except for like the two years you guys won, right? Float does the four peat. The Bridgemen do a three peat. You know, um, you know Hardiman wins back to back, and then you know even further on, uh, Angst. Uh, wins four out of five years, right? But within every single one of those cases, never won a drum title after that, right? So they have this period of dominance, and then it's not like anybody makes a decision, but something changes. What is your perspective on that phenomenon of like the activity sort of deciding almost like, not like that's enough, but we need to reward something else or, or something along those lines. What do you, do you have any, any sort of a point of view on that? Um, Be, because you've managed to avoid it. Yeah, I was going to say, and that's what Maybe. I think, that's what I think I've learned. Um, right. I mean, when I took over the Blue Devils again, which was 1994, when I became caption head there, um, mm -hmm. I thought every year from there till today, um, we had to do something different. Every year, we had to come up with something different, whether it was mm -hmm. vocabulary, whether it was a sticking pattern, whether it was an instrument, I mean, whatever, we had to do something different. Back in those days, if you were winning, you didn't change much because it was working. Right. You know, and I think that might've been the activities way of saying, okay, we need something different. 
You know, right. I don't think they actually sat in a room and said, "Okay, judges, these guys are as clean as they ever no. been." And they're, I, I, I just think that was it was time for, "Oh, this is new and different. This is cool. I'm going to reward that." You know, yeah. which I have no problem with. You know, I thought it was, you know, it's the right thing to do to keep the activity moving forward. Otherwise, we'd still be, you know, playing six inches high, and that would be it, <laughs> and, and just clean beats only. Well, and and what's interesting is now Rennick has that mantle of. He's, he had won four in a row. And I, what I'm really curious about is, I mean, and a lot of people talk about like, like he, he has something figured out. And obviously people can look and identify um, what he does with his groups and how he composes and, and how that whole thing works. Is it going to happen again? Is he going to fall victim to that? Um, just like Float did, for example. I mean, if you have anything to say about it, you will. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's not even that. What's interesting is, and I think now's a good time to bring it up, the scoring system's changed a lot. You know, back when I marched, maybe even when you marched, George, I mean, if a drum judge on the field gave you 10 points, those 10 points went to your total score. All 10 of those points went to your total score. Nowadays, for the last 10, 15, 20 years, maybe, I'm not sure when it actually happened, but if that same drum judge gives you 10 points on the field, five points goes toward your total score. Half of what you achieved from that one judge goes to the final score. The only big numbers, the only pure numbers are effect. So, I mean, what I think about when we're putting together a Blue Devil show is how are we gonna be different? How are we gonna be effective? Um, I don't care about drum numbers. That's not big points. We don't care about brass numbers. We don't care about, you know, I mean, those are, those are the small points. You know, if people want to just go for the caption awards, do it. I'll take the rings, you know, and I'm, I'm a sports guy, right? And I relate it to football, you know, who won the Super Bowl last year? Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Who had, who had the number one offense in the league? Who had the number one defense in the league? Who had the number one special teams in the league? You know, I don't know. You know, I mean, that, those are those other awards that if they happen, it's cool. Trust me, my, my staff wants to win percussion every year. <laughs> you know, the, the guys that, that teach the drum line with me, they want to win every year. You know, my job is to make sure that the whole core is being successful and however we can help them be successful. You know, by the way, we put the show together. Um, you don't want to feature just one section the whole show. You want to make sure everyone gets there for upstairs. It's all about getting those upstairs numbers. But the activity's changed a lot, you know, and I think that era kind of pushed us in that direction where you can't keep doing the same thing over and over. I mean, back when I marched, we, I played the same show two years in a row, same beat, same drill, same beats, you know, we better be clean in 77. <laughs> we had two years to, to figure it out, you know, with the exception of one little change here and there, but it was, I mean, back then it was okay to do that because there wasn't anything against it, but the activity started saying, okay, we got to be more entertaining for everybody, not just keep doing the same thing over and over and over. So, so ever since then, I, I, we've been trying to be different. Every year I try to be different. And I think that's why um, we're still in, in the game all the time, you know? Whether you win or not, I mean, we're always a contender because we, we, we get amazing performers, first of all, but also just, just to stay relevant as much as possible. And, and that's a natural thing for you. It, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like you're good with that, with, you know, with, with having to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say... We were talking about 87 a little bit. I just think it's fascinating how, and those guys who all marched that that year, 
are so passionate still about what happened on that that finals night and and I think uh you kind of touched on it a little bit you just you know you max out what you can like the the perfect score that 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 that, that always gets talked about and you know Garfield maxed out their sheets the finals night you know and uh with an iconic show mm-hmm. you know but it's 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 fascinating how guys and gals still get worked up about yeah, what's your what's your perspective on that, yeah. Scott? I mean, like, I think you have the benefit of like, you don't get hung up on any one year because you have to go do it again. And also, you know, and also, it's true. It's true. and 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 also, quite recently, you guys had a perfect score in uh, finals night in twenty nineteen, correct? In one box. Oh, I thought it was like the, the, the drumline. I thought percussion. It was. Oh, I guess I'm wrong. No, a matter of fact, I got it. I got it framed here because the guys on the line gave it to me. Yeah, we had a we had a perfect ten in achievement and a nine eight five in content. Oh, there you go. Oh, okay. In finals night, finals night in two thousand nineteen. Yeah. So, what is your perspective on all of that stuff that people get so fired about, fired up about? Basically, really holding on to stuff from their era in those in those particular years. I, mean, I, I think it's awesome. Yeah, people I mean, like myself, people um, like myself, um, I don't get hung up because I'm, like I don't you said, I'm still doing I'm Like you said, I'm still, yeah. doing. I, 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 yeah. you know, I, I, out I, the previous year and I'm trying to think what's next. Year and I'm trying and I've been doing that now for, and I've been doing my 42nd year with my 42nd year, you know, so I'm just thinking, okay, what are we going to do? I'm just thinking, I don't care about the past. I don't care about what's happening now. So I try to, literally, I try to just get out of my head. I try to just, you know, we got to come up with some new stuff. You know, we got to come up with But what I remember about what I remember about finals was, finals was, I have nothing against the cadets. I have nothing against the cadets getting the perfect, right? They had three judges at each game of 10. Three judges at each game of 10. That's when you had the field guy ensemble ensemble and the problem is they were the problem is they weren't on last and back then it was all about and back then it was all about the performance of the night that it wasn't about anything that happened during the season you know that's what they keep telling all the staff that's what they keep telling about the performance of the night have your kids do a great performance the number one great performance the number one um um and we didn't even get on the field yet and we didn't even get on the field and they already there's no place for us there's no place for us if we did better and we won the field we won the night before that was the big thing that was the big thing blue doubles won field blue doubles won the night before in semis we lost ensemble we lost we lost ensemble we won field to them but we won know and so we were you know and so we were right on guys you know we had something to grasp hold you know we had something to grasp and then when we get the finals and then no matter how well we played no matter how well we weren't going to be able to beat them in field we weren't going to be able to beat them in field you know, so, you know, so I, you know, and again, I get nothing against them. Nothing against the judges them. shouldn't the have judges given out perfect tens, tens before, before the last group went on. The last group went on. I mean, you shouldn't judges bad judges in my eyes. Because, you know, and the yeah, judges made a statement. The judges made a statement. They definitely made a statement. This, this is what made us think the activity should be going. And I have no problem. And I have no problem. I thought it was awesome. I thought it was awesome. I thought it was great. I thought it was great. You know, but the way they did it, it wasn't the right way to judge. The right way to judge. The end of the season. In my eyes. In my eyes. Not that we would have won. Not that we would have won. I don't think we would have. Can we, that's actually a, would be and would be a nice segue into talking a little bit about judging because you obviously do um, a lot of judging too. Um, so I was at and and actually what you brought up about how the percussion score is weighted um, in drum corps as far as factoring yep. into the total score um, is a, is a good segue here too. When I was at <clears throat> every year WGI meets um, after finals and they discuss rule changes. 
So the last time I was at that was 2016. And there was, um, there was a, a rule change that, that was brought up that specifically talked about changing the weighting of, um, I think it was like the PA number or something like that. And there, were, and there were all of these arguments about basically like, you know, if the line performs well, then that inherently uh, adds weight. It like makes all the other sort of, it bleeds into all the other captions. Um, and it brought up this whole philosophical discussion because the discussion, at least the way sort of Mark Thurston sort of framed it when, when, he, when it was brought up for a vote was, do you want to reward the kids or the designers? Which has been my argument for years. This, so this is good. In your mind, what should get rewarded? If it were, up, if it were just up to you. The performers. When WGI, I think it was 16, when they took points away from the music sheet, which was what, was what I like to judge. I used to you know, sit downstairs and I'm doing music. You know? It used to be called PA back in the day, right? Um, it was worth 40 points. And then they added a second visual judge, and they gave that second visual judge 20 points. And there was an average thing that the visual judges did. But in order to do that, they had to take points away from the performers. They took points away from the sheet that rewarded the performers. And I know a lot of the staff guys, because um, I'm, I'm a staff guy, you know, <laughs> not anymore in the indoor world, but I'm still a staff guy. But they really wanted to be rewarded for the design. And I kept thinking, it's not about you. It's not about you. You know, you got... And, that's a weird thing to say nowadays because nowadays a lot of people sell their shows if the organization is successful. I mean, people can make a real people can make a real, a real living. Good living. Absolutely, and a judge can make the difference if you're getting a paycheck or not. You know, which is crazy when you put it in those terms nowadays. But that's kind of the reality situation now. So the designers want to say, "Hey, reward me for what I'm doing, so I could make a living." You know, and it's like, and that's when I mean, I almost left WJ a couple years ago, to be honest, because I saw the direction. I didn't like the direction it was going. I, I've always been about the players, you know, which is why I judge what I judge there. I sit down and I always say, I got the best seat in the house. Nobody can sit in front of me, get out of my way. I'm going to sit right here and I'm going to eat up everything from what these kids and kids, the independent guy, what they're doing nowadays is insane. And it's freaking awesome, you know, and they're now getting points taken away from them, which kills me. Yeah. So now let me ask you this, because there's that aspect of it, of like how much, you know, how much should that be rewarded as far as like the total number? But then I remember very specifically a part of this conversation at the, uh, the board meetings. What should the performers get rewarded for? Which is an interesting conversation. Like, like what is demand? <laughs> what is difficult? Right? Uh, and I'm sure this is something that that factors into conversations you guys have. Um, in critique with the drum corps because um, is it you know it's weird it's like this old adage of like does it does it go back to like notes or musicality like that sort of really sort of generalized thing what what should what should the kids get rewarded for doing Um, I was on the task force for many years with with DCI right and one year I was on the task force um, it was a DCI meeting same as WGI does every year, right? They had the DCI meetings with all the instructors and a few judges were there, but not all of them. And Glenn Fugit was the caption head for percussion. And he wanted me to put together three excerpts that I was going to play. Something very airy, eighth note, quarter note, triplet oriented, 
you know, some musicality, some different heights and this and that, something in the medium and then a hero thing. Mm -hmm. So I took a pad, took some sticks, handed out this music to everybody. Okay. And the whole concept was what is demand? What's hard? Right. What's hard for a drum line to play? Perfect. You know, so I'll play the first one and it would be something like that was the first one. Second one. Third one, you know, hero, they're just yeah. ramming, right? Yeah. I was amazed at the arguments from the instructors, which one was harder. Right. Amazed. And I'm sitting there going, okay, if we can't agree on this, <laughs> we expect the judges to agree on this, you know? And my argument after everybody was, I mean, because people were going, oh, if that first one was played perfect, that would be the best thing ever. There's so much space and space is harder than filling it in with notes. And my argument, and this is at the DCI meetings again. So my argument was, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go across the convention center over to the color guard room where they're doing the same thing we're doing here. Pick four people from the color guard room that never played drums before. Give me 24 hours. I can get them to play that first one very presentable. I go now to get them to play that third one very presentable. We're looking at eight, 10 years to be able to have the chops to do right. something like that. You know, so my argument was you have to reward talent. You have to reward talent. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we get too caught up with the arranging of it or the expression of it where, you know, and the, the old argument, and Rick Odello had this argument back in the Blue Devil days when I marched. He would, he would go into critiques and say, I'll tell you what, I'll take my drum lines book and we'll take who's ever, you know, drum corps B's book. We'll switch books. I bet you my line plays them both better than anybody. They can't play our book. We can play their book. You know, that was the big argument, you know, who can play whose book better, you know, which means you've probably had more talent, more chops, whatever. And so that's always mm -hmm. been my go-to, I guess, is you have to reward talent. As a judge, when, I, when I'm judging WGI, I want to reward the kids that are playing really hard stuff really well. You know, that's going right. to be high numbers for me. Yeah, I, I um, you know, when I came out, and saw you guys uh, in 19, um, and I visited you guys during finals week. Um, I had just, I think it was finals day, just the night before I watched Santa Clara warm up, just the battery. I didn't, I didn't watch the front ensemble. But when I stood in front of him, I was like, you know, it was the first time I had seen him live, or actually the second time, because I had seen him earlier on tour. Um, but then when I came and saw you guys, um, I had a conversation with Nick Arce and I said, there's some room there, you know, for you guys. Um, and I, and I said, because just if it were me and I had to play both books, I recognize the difficulty of what you guys were doing, Blue Devils. And I think Prospery being your judge has, um, I mean, obviously there's way more than just the battery, but just in terms of that aspect of it, Prosperi is somebody that I know understands the argument you just made, which is how difficult of it is it actually to, to be able to execute that and be and, and have, and then get a line of people to execute that at a really high level. Um, and, and you guys got rewarded. Well, and what's interesting is that demonstration that I did back in, 
early 90s, whenever it was when I did that thing for the DCI guys, Prosperi was the only guy who agreed with me. He was in that mm -hmm. room and he agreed yeah. with me. And he's a, he's a snare drum. He was a fighter pilot. He's, you know, could, right. you know, so he, he knows how many hours it takes to be able to perform that stuff versus some other stuff. Right. And, and, and I think, I think the reality is, I mean, the real lesson is, is that if you want to win, you got to be able to do all of it. It's not like you can, it's not like you can just choose a lane and hang your hat on that. <clears throat> if you want a shot. Yeah. You know, what's funny is I wish I can go watch other drum lines warm up, but I really can't, you know, especially Santa Clara, you know, and, and I love Paul. I love Sandy. What they do is awesome, you know, and the drum line's extremely successful all the time and they sound phenomenal, you know, but I can't go watch them because if I go just to watch, everyone's looking at me going, you know, and the cameras come out and I'm going, no, no, you know, I, I feel I shouldn't be there, <laughs> you know, because it's weird. So I, I try and, 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 you know, we usually warm up last or close to last, you know, so we always get to the parking lots later and, you know, I, so I'm still with the drum line to warm up. So I don't really cruise around unless I get there, you know, in DC and in India, I stayed at a hotel close by. So I walked to the warm up zone and I usually get there before the drum corps gets there. So I have time to watch a few groups warm up, but I don't get to see any of the drum corps. It, you know, with what we do, I don't get to get into the stadium in time to watch anybody else. You know, I, I usually can see Santa Clara once or twice just because we tour with them in the first part of the season. I never see them in the late season. I only see them, you know, the first couple of shows of the year, basically. So it's really, it's interesting that I don't get to see anybody else. I'd love to. I'd love to be able to go sit with Paul in front of Santa Clara and have him come sit with us, you know, and say, what do you think? Check this out, you know? <laughs> but I, I don't get that opportunity. And, and you know, uh, I apologize for this digression, but it just reminds me that, um, you know, as a, as somebody who marched when, when, you know, and, and learned from you, um, the one thing I will tell you from my perspective, and I know others share this as well, that we really appreciate about you as a staff member is you're one of us, if that makes sense. Like you, you share our spirit in, in a very basic, essential way. It feels like you're on our side when we perform for you, you know, and, 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 and when you're teaching us. And um, there's something interesting about that. Like, n not all the time when, you're, when you have a, have a staff, um, sometimes there, there can feel like a little bit of a disconnect, you know? Um, and, but it always, at least when I was in the line, and like I said, I know others feel this way too, it always felt like Scott gets it. You know, in, in our sort of young minds, like Scott gets it. He gets why we're here and he's giving us every, you know, resource and opportunity to be successful in that. So I, I just want to say we really appreciate that. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. And I, I, I did, especially when I was teaching back then, I don't, I don't do as much as that nowadays. That's what my Nick Garcia's and Rudy Garcia's are for, right? <laughs> and they're the ones that now have that same passion that they got from me, hopefully, the way I taught them. And the way we taught you is I, I, I still remembered when I marched, you know, and it was, you know, you don't want to say it was a life or death thing, but it's pretty much, that's what it was, man. We're, we're going to, we're going to play this cleaner. We're not leaving. We're not, we're, you know, <laughs> we have to live. <laughs> Let's go. We got to get some work done. But that's what it was when I marched. Um, that's what Rick Odello taught me, you know, and I just try to carry that throughout every time I, and I'm a sucker. I love the activity, man. I'm a sucker for this activity. I still love it. This whole COVID year and a half now, what it taught me is I never, ever want to retire. I hate it. 
I hate not seeing the guys. I hate not hanging out with the guys. I hate not going to teach people and judge people and see drummers and talk with drummers. I mean, it, I hate it. I friggin' hate it. And I don't want to retire. You know, as much as I love my wife and thank God she likes me because I've never been home this much before in our, in our relationship. <laughs> I've been home for an entire year without leaving this house. <laughs> but I, I love the activity. I thoroughly love the activity. Well, so let me ask you this. So this can actually take us back to the 80s. Um, when you, when you left Blue Devils, when exactly did that happen and why in the eighties? Um, it was after the 88 season, um, which was a whole nother podcast <laughs> with the way that season ended up undefeated till the last show. Um, and I was, I was done with drum corps. So I thought, you know, I just didn't like what the activity was doing and people were throwing around the word that's oh, too political. It's too political. I didn't really believe in the politics of it. I just thought, God, this is just not fun anymore. So I bailed. I told Float, hey, I'm, I'm going to leave. I'm out. Um, and he talked me into doing the winter season in 89. So I did the winter season in 89. And then I um, didn't do the summer. And matter of fact, it was Larry Cohen who was in the snare line in 89. He was section leader, I think, that year. And uh, my last camp before I stopped was, it was, I think it was Memorial Week. I think it was the Memorial Weekend camp. And um, Larry put on silver dot heads on all the snares just for my last camp because we were Kevlar by then, right? And I hated it. <laughs> I hated the Kevlar. And so for the last camp, the snare line put on the heads just for me so I could, you know, hear that line one more time the way I remember it. So that was very cool. Um, so I sat home all summer of 89. I started a company with my buddy Terry, who I marched with forever, who was the best man at my wedding. Uh, we started Diablo Valley digging and we dug swimming pools. I drove a bobcat. We had a dump truck and we parked it at Mars. Mars where the Blue Devils rehearsed. That was our, we got, we parked all of our equipment there. And I helped, I helped literally grade Mars and build the building and all that stuff back in the day. Um, but yeah, we parked our equipment there and we dug swimming pools all summer and it was 90, um, which is a really weird story I won't get into, but I realized it's time to teach again. I need to teach again. I wasn't having fun anymore doing this construction stuff. It was like, you know, for us old school Disneyland guys, it was an e-ticket back in the day, you know, driving a Bobcat. You had these two handles and you're going, you're popping wheelies and, you know, spinning on a dime. And I mean, it was, I was a blast. I had a great time, but then it got to be work. It got to be labor and it got to be, this isn't what I was meant to do. I, I was meant to, to teach drums. And I ended up um, going back to the Blue Devil office in the beginning of 90. And uh, Mike Moxie was the director at the time. And I sat down, I go, hey, Mike, um, I talked with Flo. He said to talk to you, man, I want to come back. You know, and he goes, well, I'd love to have you back, but we can't pay you anything. I'm going, well, that sucks. <laughs> you know, they used to pay me pretty good. I go, and so I was like, um, well, that's kind of a bummer. And he goes, yeah, I'm sorry, but we, you know, we're paying Tom and Catherine and he named off the other new staff members. And he goes, we just don't have the budget for you. You know, if you want to teach, we'd love to have you, but we, we, we can't pay you. So I go home and I'm kind of depressed. I'm like, that's a major bummer. And I call up my best friend, Glenn Crosby at the time. Uh, people don't know Glenn lived with me too for a while when he first came to Blue Devils. We're, we're, we're literally brothers from different mothers. And we were mistaken for twins once at a bank, cashing one of his checks. This bank it's probably the hair. It was probably, it was it was definitely probably the, hair. the hair. It was definitely the mullets. <laughs> did, you guys have, did you guys have competitions to see who could grow the, like, the, the longest mullet? <laughs> Not that I know of. Probably indirectly we did. <laughs> Yeah, we, um, so he, yeah, he lived with me for the first couple of years that he came out to Blue Devils. 
but I called him up and he was teaching Santa Clara at the time, you know, 88, 89. And this was right after the 89 season, going into the 90 season. And I told him and he goes, what's up, man? I go, man, I'm pissed off. The Blue Devils don't want me to come back. They can't pay me, you know? And so I'm venting to him. And this is before cell phones. This is landline, right? The cord to the wall. <laughs> and he hangs up on me. And this is how I remember the story, at least. Glenn doesn't remember. He says, I didn't hang up on you. I'm going, yes, you did. But he hangs up on me. And I go, that's rude. What the heck? You know, so I hang up the phone. And a couple of minutes later, the phone rings. And I hear, yo, you're hired. And it was Ralph Hardiman. <laughs> and I go, what? And I've known Ralph since the 80s, right? I mean, I grew up competing against Ralph with all those, these 80 Blue Devil drum lines. And he was doing Santa Clara. I even knew him back in the 70s. Um, so we, we, we have a, a major history together, good history. <laughs> and I go, I can't teach the enemy. I can't teach the red guys. He goes, come on, man, you got to, you know, and he talked me into doing it. I'm going, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do the winter season. Cause I was still doing the construction thing. I still wanted to keep that going. So I wasn't going to do the summer. And right? so I was just going to do the winter and I'll do the winter with Santa Clara in 1990. So I went over to Santa Clara in 1990, did the winter season. And that, that was so healthy so healthy for me you know to hear how ralph taught compared to what i was used to with myself and float you know we were so vertical alignment technical you know ralph never used those same words he used musical words you know you need to blend better johnny you're not blending with billy you know and i'll walk up johnny you're late you're slow <laughs> you know but the way ralph talked to them and it came out in the end in the music it came out different sounding because of his approach on how he taught the drum line to play music and it was fascinating to me you know and so i'm absorbing as much as i can <laughs> during that winter season and then uh, it gets close to the summer and gail royer uh, the director he comes up to me and he's going hey so uh, listen we want to we want you to go on the road with us i go no I, I can't do it he goes how much would it take i should have set a higher number <laughs> i told him how much it would be a month and he goes okay pack your bags you're, you're, you're going on the road with us and i'm going I wasn't planning on leaving for the summer. So now I'm, I'm on tour with Vanguard in all of 1990 during the summer. Um, the end of that year, uh, two to two and a half, three weeks to go of the season, um, Ralph had a, him and Gail Royer didn't get along great. You know, there was you know, definitely a little rub there. And Gail would go off on people without even hesitation at times. And he went off on Ralph in front of an audience at the Dallas show on the field on the on the track you know where the core is waiting to go on and here's the director screaming at ralph Hardiman, you know and it was bad and ralph just basically after that show he says guys i'm out and he left and he quit the santa Clara vanguard that night he was amazing he ended up he called me and glenn into the motorhome um it was the next day we had a free day in houston i think it was and so we had a free day and so he calls glenn and i into the motorhome and he stayed up all night and he handed us this package of handwritten letters addressed to each member of the drumline individually. And it was his, I have to leave. This is why I know you could do this. And it was, it was literally personalized for every member of the percussion section, including myself and including Glenn, that he gave us these letters. And then he left, you know, and that was it. And so everybody's moping around going, what are we going to do? And I'm going, we're going to win. Let's go. Get up. Put them on. <laughs> Sticks up. Shut up. Let's go. We're drumming. You know, we got two weeks left or whatever. Man, I, I, I never, I've never heard this story. I, I never knew that. Yeah, not, yeah, not too many people have. But um, so the rest of that tour was me and Glenn. 
you know, Ralph was a caption head. He was the main arranger. I mean, I did some arranging that year. I brought Grace notes to them that they didn't play, you know, and my, that whole teaching experience, uh, that whole teaching experience was fascinating because like I said earlier, with, with the Blue Devil guys, everybody could play everything. We just had to get them to play it together. Vanguard, when I first started teaching there in 90, I was teaching snare drummers how to play a flam drag, which I never had to do that in Blue Devil because everybody knew how. We just had to get them to play it the same way. But literally guys are going, so that, well, you know, and I'm going, whoa. And it was, like I said, it was very healthy for me. I mean, I was really getting my teaching chops, you know, as far as teaching at every level now. And it was awesome. Um, and again, with, you know, Ralph's mentorship and just the way he addressed the line and talked to the line was fascinating to me to the point where I was trying to absorb as much as possible. So the season goes on where it's, um, and I don't remember if this was quarters, semis, and finals, or it was just semis and finals back then. You remember what that was back in those days in 90? I don't. It was probably, I, I want to say quarters, semis, and finals. Mm -hmm. Was there three shows? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. So this was the Wednesday before quarters. Um, the core wasn't doing great. We were doing okay, but we weren't doing great. We did Carmen that year. I think it was the, the you know, Vanguard had a history of doing Broadway shows that were successful. So they did Carmen that wasn't as successful as far as on the field, at least. Um, and <laughs> the Wednesday night before quarterfinals, Gail Royer let the people who went on individuals and ensembles go do the showcase, which they went and performed somewhere you know, for people in the middle of town, whatever. And it was the front ensemble, the bass line, the cymbal line. And I can't remember if it was one snare and a tenor, but it was one, if not both, you know? So we're having our last rehearsal before quarterfinals with no front ensemble, no bass line, no cymbal line, and we're trying to work the ensemble. And <laughs> I'm pissed. I'm so upset he let this happen, that he let those members go. Good. I mean, it's, you know, you think about it now. Yeah, whatever. It's great. They should go do their showcase, right? They should show the world what they worked all their individual stuff on. But I remember I was fuming and I'm pacing up and down the front sidelines, you know, at this rehearsal. And Gail stayed back with us. And so Gail was there. And every time he would come up to me during the season, it was usually something not good. You know, when are you going to clean that snare leg? And I need to walk away. <laughs> What's up with that tenor left hand? He'd walk away. So we're having this rehearsal and all there, all there is, is the snares and tenors, you know, and the horn line and the color guard. <laughs> and we're trying to do a rehearsal with a run through without the rest of the percussion section, which was totally bizarre to me. So I was upset. And I remember Gail came up to me during this rehearsal and I see him walking towards me and I'm going, oh God, he's going to yell at me about something about the snare line. He walks up and he goes, you know, Scott, I think you should take over this line next year. I want you to be the caption head. And I looked at him and I went, what? I'm trying to get through tonight. What are you, you talking about 91? I go, stop. I, and, and I was just, I, I, I didn't comprehend what was happening right there. <laughs> it was like, I, I'm trying to get through the next couple of days without us falling apart. And we have no percussion section to even work right now. And I'm like screaming at it, right? And I walk away. And it wasn't until literally after the tour that year. And um, of course he calls me again and says, so what do you think? And um, it was interesting because Mike Moxley also called me, 91, to yeah. come back to the Blue Devils. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. And um, they wanted me to teach the line, but Fred Sanford was going to write. You know, Fred was going to write the book and I was going to teach it. Um, and I remember hearing that. Yeah. And Freddie, I mean, me and Fred, we, we were best friends. You know, his wife was in our wedding, you know, and because Judy and Laura were, were best friends. Um, Fred, if 
if it wasn't for Freddie, we wouldn't have got married where we got married because he stood in line for us because we were both out of town to reserve the hall where we got married in. You know, so me and Fred, we went, we would go back a long way. And um, <laughs> I'm going, listen, I love Freddie. I would love to do that, but I want to write. I want to be the guy. And then he said, okay, what if Tom Float writes and you teach? And this is all from Mike, you know, and I'm going, I, I want to be more involved in everything. I want to be more involved in the book. And if you can't give me that. And then he even said, what if Ralph Hardiman writes and you teach? And this is all for the Blue Devils in 91. You know? Wow, that yeah. would have been... I mean, I'm, talk about scrambling. Yeah, I know. And, I, and I'm going, Mike, no. If you don't want me to do it, then, then you know, if, if I can't have it all and I make the call on who's doing what, then I, I don't want to do it. And he goes, okay, well, we'll get back to you. <laughs> and I remember I was home going, okay, Gil Royer is saying, here's the keys of the car. It's all yours. Do whatever you want with it. And the Blue Devils are saying, yeah, we want you to be involved again, but we weren't sure what we're going to do. And, and so I called Gil and I said, yep, I'm in. Let's go. And so 91 was my first caption head year with, you know, Santa Clara in the 91 season. What, I, how amazing or, and what a, what a crazy coincidence that that happens to float and Ralph the same season. Yeah. And what a massive change that the was. Activity. Absolutely. It, and in, term, in terms of affecting so many careers. Yeah. And in terms of kids, like, I mean, we can, we'll, I mean, one of these days we'll do a podcast about the line that, that may have happened, you know, in 91. Oh yeah. We always, we always talk about that, uh, the, like, uh, the ESPN special, the 1991 Blue Devils. But it's, but it, it literally feels like, like, you know, we talked about sports, it literally feels like free agency, you know, where that particular year, there was a lot of scrambling going on. A lot of people trying to figure out what the next chapter was going to be. Yeah, that's um, very true. Yeah, but, but but then too, like at Vanguard, you end up taking over for a, a legend in his own right, Ralph. You know, and 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 how I, I always thought this kind of fascinating too, that like the two big guys in the eighty, Ralph and and Tom, they marched together in in Kingsman. Mm -hmm. You know. Yep, absolutely. And you have to, and then you have to step into that. I mean, yeah. and, and there's an emotional component to that too. You Huge. know, I mean, obviously you were just like I, you know, want to get in and do the job. Huge, but. Yeah. It feels like the end of an era and that you were a part of, but then also you're going to, you're going to forge ahead, you know, and lay a new foundation. And, and then too, like we talked, we touched, touched with this with Murray, you know, you taking over for Ralph. A lot of those guys, they're Ralph guys, you know, and uh, he even <laughs> kind of alluded that he, you know, he gave you a hard time and oh, yeah. were those guys, how, I mean, can you talk about that a little bit and how, how how that tra transition was for you? The well, the yeah, it was it was tough. I mean, ninety was easier because Ralph was still there, Glenn was still there. You know, I was just I was helping out. I was kind of a consultant, and then all of a sudden, I ended up doing the tour, what I wasn't planning on doing. So the guys kind of like eased into me, you know, because here's this blue double guy coming over, <laughs> you know. And it was literally, I mean, back then it was pretty competitive, you know. Oh yeah, um, yeah, red versus blue. And then when I took over in ninety one, it was like, who's going to stick around? You know, and that's also when Ralph started to work with Blue Knights, I think, or was it VK? I think it was VK. No, Blue Knights. VK. Oh, no, yeah. Because I was VK. at VK. Yeah, 91. That was VK. Glenn, and, that's right. Glenn and Ralph did VK in 91. So I kept thinking, okay, well, how many of these guys are going to leave and go with Ralph? You know, which I completely understand. I mean, these were Ralph's guys. So um, what we had going for us was um, we had some good drummers, and they knew that I liked beats, and they wanted to play beats, you know, I think. But yeah, it was it was tough. It was definitely a, a change. Um, we were blessed with 
the show Miss Saigon that Gil Royer announced because there was a lot of donut holes that the horn line played that, okay, drumline, you created the motion, which I love that. <laughs> you know, yeah, we, I'll give you motion. You know, we'll give you motion. That's not a problem. So it was a good first year for me to be in charge of the book, even though I, I didn't write the whole thing. I mean, I didn't, I've never written the whole book. I, I, I use everybody around me, you know, the Lee Rudnicki at the time, Kevin Murray. I mean, it was definitely a major collaboration. Was that Lee? I mean, I know Lee March there, but was that his, did you bring him in or how did he get involved or was he there before? Yeah, he did not teach in 90. Um, I brought him back in 91. I knew Lee, he aged out 88, maybe. I think he helped him out in 89 on staff. Um, and I kind of knew Lee and um, I knew he was a wacko enough guy to be with us. So, <laughs> so I brought him in and, and, uh, you know, and that, that was the whole helicopter year. We figured out how to make it drum might sound like a helicopter and all that fun stuff. And it was, it was just, it was one of those years where it was a good year to be a percussion caption head for that particular group, because we were so outside the box with some of the stuff we were doing. We sounded completely different than any other drum line because of the show concept and it worked. Now, now talking 91, you know, I, uh, we had Murray on and I actually reached out to him and I got a couple questions to ask you Uh-oh. and they're 91 <laughs> specific, you know, uh, the first is, how much fun was it to clean the 91 helicopter pods at uh, Santa Clara? I don't Does that make any sense to you? Oh God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, that whole concept came about, I literally went down to an airport where they had helicopters and I sat on top of my car for a couple of days and listened to helicopters, <laughs> you know, going, how can I get this sound? How can I get something to sound like this? And again, for all you young, and this is before internet and all that fun stuff. So you had to actually go, go somewhere to do something. Couldn't find it on YouTube. Um, and I remember I, I, I brought some ideas back to the guys. And this is, again, we're rehearsing two days a week plus Sundays, you know, from like November on. So you got a whole year to work on stuff pretty much, or six months at least. So I had this concept and I took some old bass heads that weren't on the drum, just the head itself. And I started hitting it going, this sounds like when the helicopter is leaving, when, you, when it gets louder, when it's past you, you know? So we start planning that, okay, this is cool. Jim Casella, who was in the bass line at the time, he played the number three bass. He, he brought a, he made a wooden box. Cause I told the guys, we need to sound like a helicopter, go home, figure out some stuff, bring back, what do you got? <laughs> you know? So Jim brings back a wooden box that he played with some like bass mallets. And that gave us a whole different sound. And we're able to accomplish that by doing something different with like the low tenor drum on the 14 inch drum. We put like a little pad over there that made it sound a lot lower pitch. And so we figured out that if we have these four different pods of the drum line, spaced out on the field when I think we started in the end zone and came towards the 50, uh, four groups. Um, and we just played literally a single pattern and started soft and crescendoed up. And then the other group would pick up that tempo and they would crescendo up and then the next group. So the sound was traveling towards the 50 and it was a amazing effect until Alan Christensen judging says, Hey, you got to clean that up. I'm going, clean it up. <laughs> Rut row. <laughs> we didn't think it had to be clean. <laughs> I've never heard a clean helicopter. Well, that didn't work in drum corps. Right? So literally, I remember lying on a picnic bench on the 50-yard line and do it again. Just the low tarms, just the drum heads, just the... and we would just try to figure out what do you need to get that same exact tempo and come and clean with that group behind you. You know, because as we transferred the sound from group to group. And it was a process all season. It was, 
I remember in the middle of tour where somewhere and I'm laying on the front sidelines on the 50, do it again, do it again, <laughs> trying to figure it out and giving as much information that we possibly can for the guys to try to figure it out. It was crazy. Well, it, it, it obviously worked because that ended up becoming one of the iconic moments of that show, along with the uh, Excel decel there at the end of the show. Uh, how hard was that to clean? We put that in at finals. Oh, wow. That was a finals night only? That was learned in one day. Wow. We had like two different endings we were trying to do. And if you remember, right, we pulled out that big um, Saigon flag right at the very end. Um, and we had we needed some more music for it <laughs> compared to what we ended up doing. And it's like, okay, well, let's do a drum thing. Okay, guys, play this. And literally, it was the day of finals. And I, I think I'm right. I think we just did that one show and it was finals. Wow. I and stuff you learn you know you don't do that nowadays nowadays you don't do that but back then it was like yeah sure let's throw it in what the hell <laughs> yeah hey, at least you didn't try throwing in the bottle dance that year like in 82 <laughs> oh, don't go there <laughs> no 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 i'm for any vanguard uh, vanguard people i'm just kidding i know that's that could be a touchy subject you know and for those that don't know uh, if you listen to 82 uh vanguard for finals night they try to put in the bottle dance and i guess there was an ensemble tear that you can you can hear in the recording and I know why, and I can't say why, but yeah, it, the core was off by a count from side to side. <laughs> but the crowd was so loud, you couldn't tell. This was 82, by the way, not 92, but this was 82. So go back a decade for that one. Yeah. So Scott, let me ask you, this is my, my other big question I wanted to ask you. Wait, did I answer your first big uh, question? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's the, the one other sort of big question I wanted to ask you, um, because you have the perspective um, to answer it, is... Um, what happened, you know, basically referencing what happened in 90 as something that happens um, to people in this activity, which is um, you have a period of success with a group, you build a strong identity with a group, and then you part ways for a variety of reasons. It happens for a bunch of different reasons. Sure. You've managed to avoid that. How? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm a nice guy. You know, I like to be, I try to be a nice guy. Um, I don't let stuff get to me. You know, I see guys argue about stuff and I, I'll walk away going, that's stupid. You know, it's not, it's not worth the argument. Um, I guess I'm kind of carefree in that way. Um, I've been very fortunate to last as long as I have in this activity, you know, and I, I think a lot of that's just because of my demeanor and how I act and, you know, what I bring to the table still, hopefully. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, lucky the right place at the right time that was a lot of my career starting i was in the right place at the right time um you don't have to uh mention any specifics but i mean you talked about um getting disillusioned once right like when you when you uh part of, you know when you left with with blue devils just like with the activity like you the way you described yep. it yep. um was there any other time that that you were close maybe um, and you don't have to like basically describe when, but maybe because, because a lot happens in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, and not everybody does this for as long as you have. Were there any other, were there any times when you were like, yeah, I either need a break or I'm done or I want to go do something else? Um, yeah, but it was, um, when I was teaching RCC and when I quit RCC. You know, I ran the indoor line there for 
99, 2000, 2001, 2002, maybe somewhere. I think those four years. But my last year there, um, I was done with doing that. It was I, there. Uh, we had a tragedy in our house and our our family. My um my my niece she passed away in a car accident. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was 18 years old, and it was one of those things where I didn't want to not be home if stuff happened again, you know. And it was like, okay, I don't need to do this. I don't need to fly down to LA every other week for four days at a time, you know, and do the rehearsals and all that stuff. So I definitely left, you know, RCC um, purely by choice, just because I, I didn't want to do that, that, that much work or that much travel at the time. Right. It was an extra thing. Yeah. Even though it was great, even though it was great and successful. No, it was and fun. And then, you know, and to me, it's, it's the performers. When you see the performers succeed, I mean, that's why we do this. Right. So that's, you know, and that was a huge thing to watch those guys. They were, it was, it was a blast. And the best thing about doing the indoor world was you're, you got complete control. You know, drum corps, there's a lot of chefs. <laughs> there's a lot of chefs in drum corps. And back then in indoor, I mean, the staff was me, Vega, Paul Locke did the drill, and we had a couple other guys. That was it. You know, so it was whatever we wanted to do, whatever I wanted to do, and, you know, whatever. So it was like, a, that, was, that, was, that was a great gig, you know. So to give it up, I had to, it was a, it was a big thing for me to give that up. Mm -hmm.